Hey everyone, Greg Wells here. Just wanted to take a moment and let you know that we have an app. During lockdown, uh, when everything sort of shut down, we put all our efforts and energies at Wells Performance into digital because we had to. Uh, clearly, I wasn't doing any public speaking around the world, so things needed to change. So we took something that we'd been working on for about three years sort of in the background and brought it to the like urgent forefront of what we were doing. And uh, we put all our efforts and energies into finishing our app. Uh, so I've had a number of PhDs working on this for many years. I've got Ming Cheng Tsai doing data analytics, Jessica Caterini doing the medical side of things, Evan Lewis doing the work on nutrition. I've been doing some stuff on on sleep and Sarah Thompson's been working on the kinesiology side of things. And we have built this app. We, we call it Vivio, V-I-I-V-I-O. That's Latin for life. The website's V-I-I-V.io. So Vivio. And we built an app that tracks your sleep, nutrition, exercise, and mindset using all the latest tools and technologies that are available in uh, iOS and Apple Watch. So it's built currently for Apple Watch and iPhone. It basically allows you to track your sleep, track your nutrition, track your exercise, track your mindset. And then we built an algorithm that gives you individualized recommendations based on your own results. I basically built an app that I wanted to have that had everything in one place. So I don't have to have just my, you know, my workout tracker and then my sleep tracker. And like, it's all over the place. We built one that has everything in one location. We used the latest research to build the scoring mechanisms. We score actually every single one of those areas. Eat, sleep, move, things gets a score out of 10 on a daily basis to give you a sense of how you're doing uh, against the latest research and the top thinking. So we're pretty excited about it. It's uh, definitely for biohackers. It's definitely for people that are really interested in, you know, pushing the limits on their health and well-being and performance, which is probably you if you're listening to this podcast. Uh, introductory, the basic version's free, so you can check it out. Absolutely free. There's no cost. Uh, the pro version gets you the daily tips and access to your history if you want to see how you're doing and improving. So if you want to check it out, you can do so. No cost. If you want to get the pro version, we would be infinitely grateful and uh, just so privileged to have your support on that. So check it out, viiv.io. It's Vivio. We'd love to hear what you think of our new app that we built during lockdown. All right. Hope you're good and please enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. great to be with you. Thanks so much for tuning in and for being a part of this podcast journey. This week, I'm really excited to bring you an interview with behavioral change expert, Dr. Lisa Belanger. An organization's greatest asset is its people and award-winning CEO, Dr. Lisa Belanger, shows leaders and teams how insights from psychology, neuroscience, and behavioral science can be applied in the workplace to optimize performance, productivity, and innovation. She helps close the gap between intention and action, resulting in long-term change and a greater competitive advantage. Belanger holds a PhD in behavioral medicine and is a certified exercise physiologist, a researcher at the University of Calgary, and an instructor at the University of Alberta Executive Education. She is the CEO and founder of ConsciousWorks, a consulting firm that shows how insights from behavioral science can strategically improve habits of both corporate leaders and their employees. She is the author of two books, Inspire Me Well, Finding Motivation to Take Control of her, Your Health, and her upcoming release, which is now out, A Cup of Mindfulness for the Busy and the Restless. She is also the founder of Knight's Cabin, a national charity offering wellness programming to cancer survivors. We talk about 
exercise and cancer. We talk about uncertainty and fear. We talk about the little things you can do to design your day and create a vote for who you want to become, small steps you can take to get started, overcoming fatigue, what else? Progress and process versus outcome, attention management. Oh my gosh, it was a very wide ranging conversation and Dr. Lisa is a force to be reckoned with and I loved this chat. Really psyched because ultimately everything that we're talking about in this podcast comes down to can you make changes in your behavior that stick long term? That's why I wanted to talk to Dr. Lisa because I mean that's exactly what everyone struggles with and that's what she's an expert in. So there's tons of insights here that I think will be massively important for all of us and I really hope that you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Lisa Belanger. Without any further delays, let's dive right into it. It's uh, really great to have you here and super excited to talk. We were just laughing before we got on um, the actual progress record about like train wreck days and good days and bad days. And uh, we're hoping that this is a, an improvement over what's been happening so far in the last 24 hours. So anyway, I really appreciate you coming on and, and being on the show. I understand I'm catching you in, you're in Canmore, Alberta right now in the mountains. Correct, I am. And you made your life out there. So tell me about like how you ended up in Canmore. What's the origin story? How'd you get into behavior change? Like what's uh, give give other listeners like a good understanding of of where you're from and like what what led you to where you are today. Um, so I'll give you the uh, the more professional version first, and then the real version. So um, with behavior change, uh, it really stems from being a control enthusiast. I wanted to know what I could do for my health and for other people's health, and when I was uh, 16 years old, my best friend was diagnosed with cancer and I wanted to know what I could do for her. So there's, you know, 16 years old, I didn't exactly have medical training and couldn't help with a lot. But um, because I was an athlete myself, I knew that physical activity helped me think clearer, have a better day. And so it's, you know, I would take her to yoga classes, we'd go for walks. It was just a sanity thing for her during such a crazy, awful time. And it really made me curious about it. Uh, it made me curious about what physical activity could do uh, for psychological well-being uh, for c- people with chronic illness. And I ended up taking an exercise, um, advanced clinical exercise physiology course, and got really excited about what uh, exercise as a behavior could do beyond the sports world and the competitive aspects that I had been part of. Um, and it led me to doing a master's and PhD working with behavior change, physical activity with cancer patients. So very in line with what I had experienced. And it was incredible. The idea of how we can improve quality and depth of life with certain behaviors we do every day. And there's so much we can't control after a diagnosis, but there's these small elements you can to improve everything from physical well-being, mental well-being, quality of life, um, energy levels, all these different aspects of it. So uh, that's really where I got into behavioral change. When I was finishing up my PhD, I fell in love and he happened to live in Canmore where I vacationed. Um, And he said, well, why don't you come and finish your dissertation out in the mountains? Oh, okay. I haven't left. So that's how I ended up here. Right on. That's great. And what's the, so that's the professional version. What's the not so professional? Oh, I, the whole, I fell in love and I ended Got up it. where I am thing. Okay, was cool. Exactly the plan I had, but it worked nice. really well. <laughs> Good for you. I love Canmore. It's one of my favorite places on earth. So it's, um, it's a pretty special place to be able to live like in the mountains, but still close to a city 
Um, so good for you for figuring out how to make that happen. It's um, and that, I mean, more and more people are figuring out right now that they can work from anywhere, um, which is an incredible thing. And we've had to been, be really creative uh, to live here and uh, to work here, and especially as young professionals. But it is something that I wouldn't trade in for the world now. And uh, I admit that the last couple of months, because of the lack of travel, as I'm sure you're well aware, I haven't appreciated as much as I will, I know, from now on, where I've been able to explore local and do a lot of th things that have been on my list to do, and I just haven't found the time and uh, space. So that's been incredible. Very cool. Tell me a little bit more about your exercise physiology train, like exercise and cancer research. I'm just curious about what you investigated, what you found, because the reality is like, if we can find ways of helping people with cancer, that's obviously the limits of what bad can happen to people. I'm quite sure that we can gain some insights from that that apply to everybody who's oh, healthy sure. right now. 100%. And uh, even given uncertain times, if you think of like cancer, cancer diagnosis going through that, um, one of the biggest things, the biggest complaints is going to be uh, fear of recurrence and uncertainty. And that's what we're kind of all going through right now. Um, so we think of like the little things we can do. And uh, so what I studied specifically, and I was involved obviously in a whole bunch of different projects of so, uh, colorectal cancer, post-cancer diagnosis, uh, getting them on uh, exercise treatment, quote unquote, um, and looking at a bunch of different behavioral change strategies to ensure that it's a lifelong engagement, not something they come in for the trial and then stop. Uh, unbelievable success with that relationships that I had with survivors were incredible. And then my own research, um, is, excuse me, with breast cancer survivors as well, breast cancer, we did while they were on treatment. Uh, and what was so amazing about that, because there's so many physiological things that happen, we now cannot give a control group. So we can't have a usual care group with breast cancer and exercise anymore, because we know there's so many benefits, it would be like removing treatment from them. Um, so we would have a whole bunch of plethora of different strength training, aerobic uh, training in different levels uh, and we would do vo2 max tests before and after and see we would be able to create a substantial cardiovascular training effect from these uh, while on treatment which for anybody that's known anybody on treatment it's fatigue it's awful there's so many side effects but they were still able to come in three times a week and train really hard and the idea is the number one treatment for fatigue and cancer related fatigue is exercise but how do you get a fatigued person to exercise exercise. And the idea was, uh, our agreement was with them was, you come in three times a week. If you don't want to do the training, fine. Just chat with us and you'll get like a star, like a, and a check on your attendance. You're good. And of course they would come in they're like, I'm too tired today. I'm not going to do it. No problem. We sit and chat for a while. And then they're like, you know what? I'm already here. I might as well step on the treadmill. And then, of course, they step on the treadmill. You know what? I feel okay. Why don't you bump it up just a little bit? And it was able. We were able to get ninety-seven um, percent adherence rate, which is unheard of from just taking the philosophy of come in and see us. And the idea, um, a lot of it was the relationships built, but also the the exercise and how it made somebody feel thereafter. And then my specific research was around young adult cancer survivors. And what I found that was so interesting. Is absolutely, it was great for them for all these different reasons. And I had over 111 11 different types of cancer, cancers I had never heard of. Um, and uh, most people, their biggest thing was, I want to be in my social group. And physical activity when I'm in my 20s is a great way to be within my social group. We saw that those that were unmarried 
uh, had a higher, like, um, higher positive effect from physical activity. And we attribute that to the social connections made and the social support uh, achieved. Um, there was still a strong preference to walking. That was, you know, one of the things that I thought was interesting, um, but a really strong desire to train up to the point where they felt confident again, because cancer can really start muscle atrophy and like just not feeling like you have confidence in your body anymore. And what that could do for somebody in the even though they want to be back with their groups, how do we get them so that they're confident enough to be back with the social groups and to be able to play dodgeball at a very vigorous level or to be able to play hockey again or whatever that thing was? Um, there was a strong preference not to come to the cancer center for this education, like to be out in the community and to be close to home, uh, which I thought was really, really important. And then now um, with a lot of the work I do with the charity, we're doing so much obviously virtual now. Um, but we're serving people we haven't been able to serve before because of it. And because there's a like increasing knowledge of those virtual aspects of it, which is incredible. Um, so yeah, that's a lot of the research I did around cancer. I'm still doing quite a bit, but it's more around um, social nature connections, exercise in nature. Um, and then uh, what can hiking do that regular exercise in a gym can't? Um, so things like that. Um, so much to unpack here. <laughs> I would love for you to explore the idea of uncertainty and the impact that that has on us, how we can cope better with uncertainty and the fear that accompanies it. Obviously, that's just the t if that's like one thing that can summarize 2020, it's basically that. So yeah. um, I would love any and all of your thoughts on that, even though this is um, you and I are recording in 2020, it's probably going to come out in 2021, but still super interested in your thoughts on uncertainty and fear. I'm simplifying dramatically, but a really great way to think of it is this. There's so much rapid change, uncertainty, fear, et cetera, right now, but our bodies can't be like, oh, that's fear. They receive it as stress. So if we think of it in that way, we know the impact certain behaviors can have for us. And then if we also think about in order to deal with things like this, in order to deal with those like life events, those big things, those small things, those hard things, it's really about creating the perfect or most ideal chemical soup for your brain. What is going to bring in those chemicals, those hormones, those, um, those things that we know aid in the neural connections, on the habit formation, on the ability to deal with uncertainty and stress. And it really comes down to that idea of how you design your day. What habits mm. are you creating? And like each habit you're doing is really a vote towards who you want to become. So what are you voting for? Ironic right now, but um, just being able to think about your day in that way. Because if we do things in regards to when feeling, for example, when you're feeling overwhelmed and you decide to go for a walk, for example, you're not like, oh, I'm preventing heart disease. Of course no. not. No, you're, you're trying not. to feel better when you get yeah. back and then kind of reframing that. Uh, this is actually something that I'm doing for my competitive advantage, whether that's work or that's just being able to be present with your kids, like whatever it is, but you're, you're just trying to figure out how to create that neurological soup. So whether it's physical activity, whether it's mindfulness, whether it's how you feel your body, all these amazing things you talk about and, and thinking about it from uh, how is this arming myself for all of this? 
The other thing that I think is so important that we forget to do, and that is so important, I can't underline enough, is this is practice. Dealing with uncertainty, you have to practice it to get better at it. There's no like secret sauce. There's no something that's going right. on behind you. And, and we do not deal with change well as humans. And you know this because if you go sit at another um, chair at your dinner table, how much that stresses absolutely everybody else out, even though there's empty chairs all around you. Um, so can you practice that? Can you do something different every day, just a little something? And that literally trains your brain to handle the big somethings, right? So can you create the routines when life is good for when life is chaos? Uh, and that's what a lot of what it comes around. And, and a lot of what we've gone through is we're examining what habits we have and what we don't have and what's stuck when we had to work from home, for example. Um, and then being really conscious about the efforts we're putting in. Uh, I, I really, I, this might not come out in the appropriate time, but really challenge people to try to look at what they want to maintain and what they want to design because we have actually more flexibility, if, even if it doesn't feel like that, around a lot of our daily uh, work design or daily habits than we've ever had. So how can we leverage that and how can we pick and choose what we're stacking on top of each other? to really serve us for everything from work and um, being able to be uh, focused and competitive there, but also for life and what it has to throw at us. Um, love that. Again, taking piles of notes as we go through this. Um, habit formation is a fascination of mine. Uh, before the COVID-19 era, I was doing morning workouts and then <laughs> I've not been doing morning workouts. I've shifted to afternoon workouts because I wake up and I just want to work. I don't know why. I've just sort of been going with that. It's been working okay, but I've been doing my workouts in the afternoon. But I do feel like I want to shift back to the mornings now. And so when you design your day, which is an interesting term, you're we're designing our days. We're, we're leveraging the fact that maybe we've got more control than we anticipated that we had. And that's a vote. When you make good decisions, you form good habits, you design your day, and then you execute on it. You're voting for who you want to become. I love that idea. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, like uh, we talk a lot about like black and white things or, and I know you are, some of the leverages this idea um, so, so well is uh, it's not about those big changes, those big moments. It's about progress. It's actually about the progress. It's about the hike up the mountain um, as much as it is about the view. And uh, what, We've been sold our quick fixes and, you know, how do we get somewhere quickly when that's not the point. The point is these small changes, these incremental changes in the direction you'd like to go. Um, and what are your habits doing to get you there? And so when we think of everything from mental well-being, physical well-being, um, strength is not built because you had a workout, it's built because you were able to do the reps. You were literally able to do um, those those reps within that set, but also daily. And I think about the one for me that makes the most sense because I've always been passionate about physical activity. So it came easy to me. I loved it. I craved it. And I, um, that's whether that's playing sports when I was growing up or whatever it might be, um, or just being a type triple A personality and just getting all the, the stress out uh, during the workout, whatever it is. But mindfulness has always been a challenge for me and being able to see the effects of small practices daily. 
So being able to practice these things multiple times a day, but only for a couple minutes, and then slowly seeing the progression in that and what that does for your attention management and your focus and decision-making and responding versus reacting and all these great things you hear about. But um, being able to add them up because you are some of your daily behaviors. You are not one of them. You are not the piece of cake you chose to have on the birthday. You are, if you choose to have a piece of cake twice a day, every day, that is who you are. So being able to think about it like that uh, and really trying to focus on those little tiny decisions that you're making. I love it. You talked also a lot about the fact that relationships and the social group were key determinants of success for the cancer patients that you work with. And again, leveraging the fact that if it works for people undergoing cancer therapy or survivors of cancer, it's probably going to work for the rest of us mere mortals. Um, I would love to know more about that, like the power of relationships, the power of, of the social group in terms of helping you implement these small changes, keeping it going, being successful at whatever it is you're trying to implement. Because that, believe it or not, has been like, there's one thing that's come up in this podcast this year, in like what we're calling season four, the latest group of episodes, is that every single time I'm, at, I'm talking about relationships, so the power of social groups, like this is such a theme. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm somebody that I truly thought exercise fixed everything. Like it was just like a fundamental belief of mine. And I remember reading a recent study um, that was a meta-analysis of like all health behaviors. It was absolutely massive. And it, and it was like, what are the ones that are most strongly linked to a long life? And I'm like, well, obviously exercise. Uh, and number two and number one were both social. And I was blown away because I don't often think of me being social as investing in my health. Like, I, you know, like I would going to the gym or playing or what, a sport or what have you. And number two being how many people, like how many deep relationships you have who would visit you in the hospital. And then number one being how integrated are you in your community? Like, does your barista know your name? Does your male person know your name? Does your bartender, I'm just kidding, that would be another problem. But, um, <laughs> yeah. And they did look at that. They actually looked at what if people had terrible health behaviors, but a really strong social network. And it was a true effect of that social network being what uh, really truly had a, an impact. And um, it's, really changed the way I've thought about it because it is an innate need to be social. So we can use it as a motivation. We can use it as leverage it as a system or tool, which I'll talk about in a second, but also it's uh, phenomenal for a house. So it's a, it's an outcome. It's something that can drive that outcome. Um, so the, where it comes in from a habit perspective is uh, <laughs> we always try to affect motivation, which I find hilarious because we're very difficult to affect very, very challenging to change in anybody else, especially like, especially let alone ourselves. And um, so we ebb and flow in motivation, regardless of, you know, you're crazy motivated to run uh, um, a marathon, for example, like you're unbelievably, you've got all the gear, you got all the training, uh, you're ready to go. And then all of a sudden it's minus 40 and you're not as motivated anymore or, 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 or injury, whatever it might be. Um, But what you can do is leverage the system you create and the system you create is your physical environment and your social environment. So there needs to be more thought, energy, effort put in towards what system and what social and uh, environmental that we're creating and how can we change it? So if you ever think of changing a behavior or habit, you have to fully think about your physical and your social environment because those are what's going to get you through those low motivation days. I'll give you an example. I am training for a run. It is terrible. I don't love 
running. I do it. Uh, and I, there was many days I don't feel like going, but I go with a friend and there's somebody waiting for me at the door. It's very difficult to say no to a person. Um, it's much easier to say no to myself or to convince myself I don't have to that night. So it's something that we can uh, take advantage of and leverage and think about it in the workplace or group or like social settings. There's so many things we could do to create those habits we really want. Love it. Talk to me about why motivation's so hard. Like, and I know that, you know, the weather changes. So your motivation to go for that run is different. But um, earlier today, I was on the phone with Dr. Robin Hanley Defoe, and we get, got into a discussion around whether or not um, motivation leads to action or action leads to motivation. So I'd love your take on that, too. Neither. I will take okay. neither on that one. Nice. Um, oh, cool. I, I really think it's giving us way too much credit. Um, we are not as conscious as we think we are on what we do and why we do it. Um, so here's a really great example. Um, you know, when you're traveling and I know, you know, when you're traveling in the hotel, you have those things like save the environment, like reuse your towels. And the reason they did this is they did a focus group to be like, what could we do to get people to reuse their towels? And they're like, oh, we really care about the environment. We would do it for the environment. Not the case. They had a group that had that, and then they had the group that said, uh, like, name the percentage, I can't remember what it was, 42% of other people in this hotel reuse their towels. Way more people reuse their towels knowing other people did it than saving the environment, okay? So, like, we do, and that's another really great uh, way to leverage social is this, like, peer pressure, but for good. Um, We do so many things because it's easier and more attractive, that's it. Not because we have these intense classes of motivation or like these one-on-one coaching sessions and all these things, which are really great and can turn the needle a little bit. But can you make the habit you desire the easiest, most attractive thing to do? And you'll probably do it. We are both lazy and simple. (laughs) That is really wild. So if you want to, you need to, so a core thing is if you're trying to make a, a new habit, make it as absolutely as easy as you possibly can. So one of the things, this is so funny, because one of the things I do when I've got to do a morning workout is I will put my gym clothes on the floor by my bed. Mm-hmm. So I literally sit up in bed, I put my feet down and they hit my shoes. So yeah. I have to literally like walk over my gym gear to get out of bed. That, that you're, literally, you're literally creating a barrier not to do the activity, right? Like <laughs> you're putting something in your way yeah. Um, and making it harder for yourself. Absolutely. You want to stop watching so much TV, move the remote. It's amazing what we will do if we think we have to get up to turn on the TV. Oh my God, it's so funny. Yeah. Um, and so absolutely taking that um, and, you know, and I say this, use it for good, not evil, but even for people around you, if you're trying to get somebody to do more of something, making it easy and attractive will get you so much further than hours and hours and hours of education. Um, so uh, a great example is a study done, and I want to say it's Minnesota, um, where the researcher was looking at uh, hospital canteens and water consumption and soda consumption, pop consumption. And all they did was make water available in every single fridge and put baskets of it everywhere. And water consumption went up 30%, which is literally what we can do with motivational training in the most extensive uh, behavior change trials. And all she did was make it more available. That's fantastic. What a cool insight. I would love to also know about your 
it's sort of moving around to things you said that I'm interested in. Um, nature connections and hiking, being outdoors, the power of nature, any of that, because I've been so fascinated by the difference in my own mental health now that we've been in eight months of lockdown on days when I'm sort of frustrated, I'm at my desk, I'm like, oh, like just like cloudy. And I'm, like, I'm going outside. And within five minutes, I feel better. Like it's just absolutely incredible when I get by the water. So would love your thoughts on that. So I started this notion. Like I always knew nature was good. Like people say that and you're like, yeah, sure. Like, of course, right? And uh, it's something, you know, people will go camping and seek out and, and stuff like that. I didn't really understand the science behind it. And I started li listening to an audible podcast called Three Day Effect. And they looked at the being out in nature for three days for people with like PTSD and some of this most severe forms of depression, anxiety, and the impact it had on them and really being as powerful and more powerful than a lot of the, you know, talk therapy and drugs that we have. So what is it? What is it about nature? And looking at those clinical effects from blood pressure to heart rate to, you know, um, cortisol levels, like there's so much science there. So what is it? And uh, I started working with a colleague down in Utah that that studies this and um, a neuroscientist looking at the MRIs uh, post um, periods of time in nature. And it's, and I mean, again, oversimplifying, it's much more complex than this. But your corpus callosum is that part of your brain that's on during heavy decision making, often for us during work. And I have to accentuate this also while watching media and or social media. It's on. Wow. And so how do you turn it off? How do you give it recovery? How do you give it respite? And there's many different ways you can do this. Essentially, it's being present in whatever other activity you're doing. But nature forces it to be turned off. So uh, nature, emerging, immersing yourself in nature, being with animals, all these things kind of turn off that part of your brain, giving yourself the ability to recover. We need recovery every single day, arguably hourly. And we're never really taught how to do that and do that effectively. Um, so I became incredibly passionate about that. I obviously live in a great place that I can take advantage of that um, often. And it is, it is, it's, I mean, without trying to sound cliche, but it's therapy. It, it is a functional way that you can force yourself into a recovery period. And it should be something that is prescribed to pretty much everyone. I agree completely. Um, nature, obviously, like recovery, regeneration, uh, kind of the focus of the last book that I wrote, but it's becoming now um, so essential for everybody because our work home separation has been basically eliminated. Yeah. Um, we've been on go nonstop for a long time. People didn't take vacations because where, where you can going? we go? You're not going anywhere. So why take it? And I think people are kind of running on empty and anxiety levels are climbing. So are there any other tactics that you have? We've done exercise, we've done nutrition, any other tactics around um, taking those breaks, giving yourself a chance to reset, uh, taking a breather. I, I would love just like anything else, like the small steps we can take just to help us recover and regenerate better during, you know, hourly, daily, whatever. Um, uh, so, um, first I did a meta-analysis on breaks during, for office workers during, um, work time. So not li limiting it to after work or weekend. Uh, essentially all breaks are good. They're going to be null or positive for mental well-being, performance, um, psychological, psychosocial stuff, like all the metrics, they're null or positive. Breaks are good. 
the number one excuse people don't take breaks is I'm too busy. I don't have time. I assure yeah. you, you do. <laughs> um, there was a recent study out saying, you know, you get the benefits of physical activity after just three minutes, um, psychological benefits. And so what can you do in a short amount of time? And that's really where the mindfulness comes in, the breathing exercises, the physical activity, the nature, but it goes down into three buckets, connect with yourself, connect with others or connect with nature. Those are effective breaks. Mm -hmm. If I was to put it even more simply, just get off the screen. Uh, We have so much screen time that it's horrific. And I just saw a study that showed the quickest way to improve your happiness score is to unplug. And I thought that was a great, um, a great message. When things get really challenging, it's not putting more on yourself. It's just saying unplug. Um, The other thing that I've seen a lot of people working with companies all over, um, not taking what we call doormat behaviors. So behaviors that separate work and home. So it used to be a commute or a walk or whatever it was. And now you're walking into the other room, which, you know, easy to walk back in. The average U.S. uh, few months ago now, but the average U.S. workday got 47 minutes to two hours longer and not more productive just longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what are those things you do at the beginning and the end of the day? And that's where I leverage that nature effect as I take my dog for a walk. So I no longer have a very long commute, which used to be to Calgary. Um, so about an hour and uh, just take the dog for a 15 minute walk. She loves it. I get in out nature and it's just a great way to kind of psychologically gear up or gear down uh, for what's next. And the idea is this, <laughs> our humans do not do two things at a time. We do not multitask or anything that involves a level of focus. So uh, I hear so often of people being like, I have to get home or in the other room to have dinner with my family. And they're still half thinking about work and half with their family. So they're not getting the recovery of being around people they love and they're not doing any work. So they're doing two things terribly. So it allows us to kind of separate that a little bit um, and be 100% present wherever we are, whether it is at work or whether it is home when possible. How can we be more present? How can we be more mindful? How, what is mindfulness? Like, how do we do that? Uh, the short answer is practice. Uh, <laughs> it focuses a, a trained skill. It's something we need to practice to get better at. And mindfulness is the idea of, in the simplest form, is can you notice when you're not focused? So can you notice when your thoughts are wandering and bring them back to whatever you're trying to think about? And those are opportunities to practice. They're not failures. They're not anything like that. And so uh, when I was doing my PhD, um, uh, mindfulness meditation often appears in the same journal as physical activity. So I was reading all these studies and I'm a type AAA personality. I'm a control enthusiast. I'm a lot of things that don't usually sync with meditation, but I couldn't deny the effects, like looking at it and being as effective as opioids in some of the studies. I'm like, okay, (laughs) there's something here, but there's no way I can sit and think for an hour, be alone with my own thoughts for an hour, sit still for an hour. So I was like, what can I practice? And it was just over my coffee, coming to my five senses, really enjoying that cup of coffee. I love coffee. So it worked. And um, can I notice when I wasn't thinking about my coffee? Can I notice for five, 10 minutes, if my thought wandered to my to-do list or to work or whatever it was, and bring it back? That's it. And can this be practiced over wine? Yes. Yes, it can. So, um, but anything really. And can you focus and notice when you're not focusing? I've never heard it described that way, but it's really um, awesome because so many times people say, 
oh, I just can't meditate. You know, I did it. My mind was all over the place. I was my, I couldn't do it. But actually, if, in your context, it's like if you notice that your mind was all over the place, you were in fact being mindful. So you know, that's the practice that is the practice is to bring yeah. your thoughts back. And I somebody explained it to me. It was like uh, you're you're a guide dog for your thoughts, and you're just bringing it back into the path that you wanted them to. And I thought that was a really non-judgmental, awesome way to say it, um, because we are so pass fail with our behaviors, which makes no sense. Behaviors are really hard to accomplish. They're hard to change. Um, in the direction we want to. Behaviors are very easy to change. It's not always the direction we want. Um, so in, in, in that way, um, can we be kind to ourselves and not judgmental when we do not accomplish the behaviors? Because that is much of a secret as any of the other behavioral design is what is the self-talk because we often, uh, you know, I skipped my run today. I'm not a runner, I guess. Like, it's like this pass-fail language. And for anybody that's been around kids, has kids, has ever seen a kid learn to walk, what adults do is they crouch down, they make a high-pitched noise, they're, like, super encouraging to take that step. Imagine when they fall down, we were like, well, I guess you all should over. stay there. You're not a walker. Right? <laughs> we never do that. Um, but we do it with ourselves all the time. Uh, and do it with other people all the time that are going through the process of trying to change behaviors. So being able to just say, not yet, uh, adds a little bit of like, oh, try again, like not yet. Um, and you can go a long way. I'm fascinated also by self-talk, which is another conversation <laughs> piece for this podcast this year. And what has been coming up is the difference between how you speak to others versus how you speak to yourself. Yeah. And so when you describe the baby analogy, imagine if, you know, the first step and it fell and you're like, oh man, it's all over. Brutal. <laughs> Brutal. Versus like, way to go, buddy. Okay, let's do that again. Oh, I got you. Yeah. Right. Like, why do we not speak to ourselves the way that we would coach others? Like, imagine if you spoke to anyone else the way that your internal monologue goes. No one would ever want to be anywhere near you. But this no, is how would, sometimes no we speak to ourselves. No friends. Yeah. No friends. Um, it's completely true. And it's a really hard uh, adjustment. There's so many industries that have made billions and billions of dollars telling us we were not enough, right? There's so many forces at hand um, that do that. And then there's, of course, a lot of people throughout life where there's a really pass-fail approach. I mean, even in, in school, like you pass or you fail. And uh, then they don't teach you how to fail, which is mm. ironic. <laughs> um, so I love this. Uh, there was a high school in um, downtown Chicago somewhere that there was a lot of kids failing the classes. So they put not yet instead of fail on the report card. And they're statistically like two times likely to retake the course if they're given a not yet versus a fail. Wow. So cool. The power's there. And it's just a matter of trying to learn how to speak to yourself and basically without, again, sounding dramatic or cliche, but redevelop the relationship you have with yourself. You are human. Therefore, <laughs> these things are challenging. How do we yeah. get through there? And how can you stay on that course? And this, this goes for like self-talk, but also working with groups and working with others and working with difficult people. Can you stay on course with what is the objective? Because if you think of it that way, negative self-talk does not get you any closer no. to the objective that you're seeking. Uh, and same with uh, ridiculous arguments and egos coming into play and all this stuff. So can you stay on with what is that, that, what is that key objective? I'd love to learn more about Inspire Me Well. Tell me about your latest book. My latest book is Cup of Mindfulness. Oh, oh sorry, I got it backwards. My bad. 
Yeah. Let's hear about let's hear about inspire me well and then I want to hear about a couple mindfulness. That was actually next on my list. So we'll do it in reverse order. Okay. So inspire me well is um this idea of there's so many great stories. Can we leverage the idea of stories on how people have changed behaviors, how they've taken uh control of some of these health aspects um and and made fundamental changes because change is hard. And so can we learn from other people's stories and leverage these incredible narratives? Um, so it's uh, a bunch of different stories. Each chapter is a story. And then myself and a dietitian come in to talk about the science behind why, why it worked, uh, why, what things that they did really amazing um, to, to leverage that. So bringing in the science of behavior change and then um, perspectives from physical activity, sleep, science, uh, nutrition, et cetera, you know, things, you know, a couple things about um and then a couple mindfulness um i had it in my head for so long and i had a daughter a year ago now and wrote it all in three weeks because it was just sitting there ready no to come way wow and I, was told I couldn't move so you know not great at that um and the, the concept is those that need it the most that need mindfulness the most do not have time and feel like they can't do it right and so how can you make it bite-sized, but productive? How can you explain the concept to get people mindfully curious about what it could do for them and how they can leverage it every day, but then also in those times of need? So everything from grief to uh, the current state of the world. I wrote it before there was a global pandemic, by the way. Yeah. Um, that was not timed well. Yeah. For me. Um, but uh, I think it's such an important message. It's something that um, I am probably that the least person, the le least likely person to lean into that idea of mindfulness, whether you call it focus training or attention management or whatever you want to call it. But uh, the impact is undeniable. Uh, and it's a gift I just wanted to give everyone that really needed it. And I will say from a personal experience, um, career loving parents, that was one of the target markets where I was just like, ah, you need it. You need it to be able to uh, fully experience when your kids are little, but still have that career drive and the focus from now a smaller amount of hours working. How can you get both? Uh, and yeah. this is like a brain training that will really do that. I love it. What's next for you? What are you interested in? What's fascinating you these days? What's got your attention? Um, so a few things. I am about to launch a podcast. So I have so many other questions for you um, called hey. the Science of Work, which is about work design. So how can we leverage work design to really get what we want out of work and life? Uh, and there's so many questions we're asking within work that we're not looking at the data behind. Um, so that's really exciting and, and looking at behaviors and habits within this context. Um, and I am so excited about the work I'm doing around uh, behaviors and habits for resilience and for mental well-being. Um, these are things that I'm passionate about, uh, but so many people, do they care about wellness? Maybe. Do they know what wellness is? I don't know. Do they know if they feel good or not? Absolutely. Mm. And so can we leverage that as goals, as, as being like part of the motivation and the, the inspiration for some of these behaviors is, is we've tried to sell health behaviors as if they're healthy for a really long time and it has not worked. No. Can we switch it around a little bit to look at the mental well-being effects, the competitive advantage effects, the performance effects of them uh, and what's there. And then looking at uh, how we can use behavior change within a healthcare setting. It is something that has been siloed 
and researched, but not integrated, mm. um, and how we can also combine wellness and, and healthcare and why they exist in different worlds right now. I'm not quite sure. So is there a business model? Is there an intriguing way that we can uh, leverage that? So there's multiple projects on the go right now, which I'm thrilled about uh, and cannot wait to see the effects. There's there's things I'll keep myself busy until I can travel again. I am sure of it. Yeah, we'll figure it out. Yeah. Um, I I'm so psyched for your podcast. That's amazing because obviously, you know, getting people to be healthier at work is they, where you spend eight, eight hours a day, maybe more. Oh, so yeah. why not be healthy while you're there, right? So that makes perfect sense to me that you'd focus on that. I remember once I did a keynote, I did, I was doing a session, a workshop for some lawyers and I was explaining like how to eat to prevent cancer, heart disease, type diabetes. They all had it, by the way, clearly from looking around the room. And no one was paying any attention to me, right? They're looking no, at their phones. they are not. You call it a wellness program. You know the people that need it the most are turning off. Right. And, so and, it, one of the things and the marathoners are all in. So it's no, like the opposite. <laughs> yeah. This is my advice to every single person I'm talking to right now that runs wellness programs. I'm like, the first problem is do not call it a wellness program. Yeah. Because the people that need it the most simply won't do it. And it should be how we do things here. It should be so integrated. And if you can get your leadership understanding the positive effects of this, it doesn't, it becomes a no brainer. And it's also a no brainer for us to incorporate it into the hospital setting. If you think about it, it's, it's sick treatment right now. It's not nothing to do with health and well-being. So imagine if the food that we served people in the hospital was health promoting food. Step one, imagine if we had like real mindfulness and uh, mindset, you know, training for everybody, patients, parents, you know, physicians, like the healthcare workers as well, right? Like to, to, totally. to um, leverage that in, in the food in a hospital setting is the easiest way to describe. They have no alternatives. Like there's no um, you know, you can choose this or this. If you have an allergy, that's pretty much where it stops. So if you think of easiest, most attractive, maybe it's not the most attractive, but it's certainly like it's the the option. People are going to yeah. eat that. You have full control of what people eat and they decide to serve not healthy food. Yeah. I was in, uh, everyone listening to this has heard this story before, but when I was in the hospital with the heart infection in the cardiac ward, the food that they brought us was all the food that causes heart disease. It's like, this is incredible. Like it's just literally going to ensure that no one leaves here alive i gotta get out of here as fast as i can so well, anyways yeah. we have to we have, of, we have to switch the incentives though like, right, who, i agree totally yeah, who's making money off what and what is it actually promoting and are there business models that people can still make money promoting the things that actually keep us well or alive or uh functioning Right. Totally. And I love that idea of incorporating um, the financial aspects of it too, because it's got to be viable and it's got to be viable yeah. long-term. Yeah. And, and if we separate that out, then it probably won't, it won't last long enough for it to, to make sense. So I love that you're doing that as well. If people want to connect with you online, how do they find you? Where can they, where can they follow your research and your ideas and, and get in touch? Uh, so consciousworks.com is um, a consulting business and con at, or at consciousworks and all of the social medias um, is where I hang out uh, and is where we're trying to leverage this information to get into people's hands so they can make it work. Right on. Dr. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening, everyone. Really hope that you enjoyed that podcast with Dr. Lisa Belanger, behavior change expert. If you want to learn more, about what she's up to, you can check out her website at drlisabelanger.com. 
She's also on Twitter at that handle. And we really appreciate you tuning in for this. If you enjoyed it, please share it with your friends and family. That'd be super helpful. If you want to give us a review on iTunes, that's even more helpful. Thank you so much. And of course, if you want to let me know what you thought about the episode on social at Dr. Greg Wells, I would be super thrilled to get back to you and have a chat about it. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. We really appreciate it. Stay healthy and safe, everyone. We'll see you again soon.